0: Last week, we talked about we believe the Bible is a book that we can trust, amen? And so as we're building from there, we're going to talk over the next three weeks about the Trinity. And the title of my message today is The Father That We Worship, The Father We Worship. The word theology comes from two Greek words. Uh, They are theos and logos, Those two words basically mean the study of God. Um, As we think about theology, everything that we study when we're at church is the study of God. His character, his attributes, that's what we sing about, that's what we talk about. And I figure it's a good thing for me to preach about. Right? I mean, people buy literally millions of dollars are spent per year, especially in December and January for self-help books for diet plans, for all these different things to try to make some change in your life. And all the while you could steal a Gideon Bible from a motel for free. I mean, it could change your life. Okay. The Bible can change your life. So us studying God's word is really important and us studying God is very important. So those two words, theos or theos and logos, that basically means One of them means God and the other means discourse or reason. So it's literally developing in us the ability to defend our faith. From the start, it's important that we understand that you are in a church today that is considered Trinitarian. It's important to know that because there are churches who claim to be Christian that are not Trinitarian. So... I want to help you over the next three weeks as we talk about God the Father. Next week, we talk about God the Son, and the following week, God the Spirit. As we talk through those things, I want us to have some foundation of what the Trinity is. Some people call it or refer to it as the Triune God. Basically, the word Trinity uh, would be three parts in unity. That's essentially what that word means. It was, It's a manufactured word. It was made by a person to try to describe but not define God. And so we've carried it with us over the years from the early days of the church to help us understand the character of God being three in one. So the word Trinity doesn't appear in Scripture, but the concept is apparent in the Old Testament And um, we'll talk more about that next week. The imagery and the appearance of the Son of God through different representations happens in the Old Testament. He's also known as the angel of the Lord. We also know that the Spirit of God is present in the Old Testament. They're not always represented in the same moments. But in the New Testament with the birth of Jesus Christ and his ministry, there are replicated times, or not replicated, but repeated times that all three are in the very same picture at the very same time. It is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, of the divine mysteries about God that he can be three in one And we can be serving one God, the Lord our God, and we can see him represented as Father, Son, and Spirit. To our finite minds, this may seem like a contradiction, and it may be hard for us to explain sometimes when we talk to somebody else. So I want to give you some very simple thoughts today. Uh, Not because I want you to feel like you're being talked down to, but because I want us to all be on the basic level of being able to articulate these things when we talk about our faith in God to others. Because if you've ever met a Muslim, if you've ever met somebody who's a Buddhist, or somebody who follows a different religion altogether, to try to explain this to them is a challenge even for a pastor, who studies the Word of God. So I want to give us some simple theology today that will help us um, as we begin to talk about the Father. But let me say this. For those churches that consider themselves Christian but do not consider themselves Trinitarian, there is a major problem. And the major problem is this. At every juncture in church history, from the moment of Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes even until the day here in January of 2023, anyone who does not agree and understand the Trinity in their belief system, they are compromising other issues or beliefs that are found in the Bible as well. So if they are foregoing, let's just take the example, if they are foregoing the Holy Spirit as part of God then what they end up doing is alienating him and putting him with limits in a certain time for a certain purpose, and that's it. If they talk about Jesus being fully man, that he was God's man on the earth, but they end up doing something along the lines of uh, declining to agree or de- uh, dividing themselves over the thought of his deity, then what ends up happening is they forego the virgin birth. They don't believe that Mary was a real virgin, that she'd never been touched by a man, and that what was conceived in her was conceived, the Bible says, by the Holy Spirit. So they go off the deep end and off, I would say, to the left and to the right in various ways because they'll deny the deity of Christ, they'll deny the full atonement of Christ if they do not understand the Trinity. And they'll specifically deny the personhood of the Holy Spirit. But I'm here to tell you, you are in a Pentecostal church today. You may not have thought that you would ever be seated in a Pentecostal church, but yet here you are, and I'm so glad you are. Today I want to talk to you about the Trinity and give you some information that will help, and we're going to start in Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, Paul the Apostle is talking to the elders, the Ephesian elders, and he's actually, um, he's preaching to them. He's sharing with them the gospel. And he says something very interesting in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. He says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. Verse 29, I know that after my departure Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Verse 30, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. So he's encouraging the leaders in the church of Ephesus, and he says to them, When I leave your presence there are going to be wolves who come to devour what has been given, fierce wolves, and they will not spare the flock. And you'll be surprised, there'll even be some in your flock that twist the word of God to go in a different direction than the original plain gospel that we've preached. So it's so important that we understand that the Trinity is the cornerstone. Our belief in the Trinity is the cornerstone of our faith. In fact, if you didn't catch it, let me emphasize this in Acts chapter 20. Pay attention to the words that you see. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's telling human men who are leading in the church and women, the Holy Spirit has ordained and purposed you to be an overseer. And it says then, he uses the phrase, the church of God, which he bought with his blood. God is a spirit who does not have blood or need blood. There is one part of God that ever possessed blood, and his name is Jesus. There's Trinitarian belief and doctrine all throughout the word of God. And Paul is standing firm on it here at the very beginning of the building of the church saying, listen, there are going to be people who deny some of these aspects, don't tolerate that stuff. So I encourage you because I say today there are still heresies and still divisions that continue To attack the church. There are still wolves. They ride in nice cars. They preach on TV maybe. You may have heard them speak in a local church. It's not always a celebrity. There are wolves who do not preach the full gospel. So you, this is why last Sunday's message is so important. You have got to be a student of the word of God because that's the primary way for you to know what to agree with or disagree with. What should a Christian know or believe about abortion, about birth control, about capital punishment, about any of these things that people talk about in society? The answers are found in the word of God to know where you stand and what you should agree with and not agree with. And the same is true of our spiritual understandings. Do we really believe that Jesus can save anyone, anywhere, at any time in history? Yes, we do. Why? Because we understand the significance of John 3.16. That any who come, you don't have to be Jewish, you don't have to be tall, you don't have to be rich, you don't have to be this, you don't have to be... Any who come can come. It's the gospel message for you and for I. It continues to be attacked to this day. It may be news to you, but the enemy that attacked the church then is still alive and still well attacking the church today. You say, well, pastor, I was in a church where people disagreed about the color of the carpet. (laughs) Y'all know what I'm about to say because I disagree with the color of this old carpet. One day it will be different. But listen, I'm telling you, there have been divisions in churches over Sister Betty's Sunday school classroom or over, I can't believe you're having a potluck or I can't believe you're canceling service on a holiday. All sorts of reasons why people choose to be divided. And here's what I'm telling you by the Spirit of God today. You war not against flesh and blood. The Bible says we are in a spiritual realm at the same time that we're in the physical. There is more than meets the eye. There is more that meets the eye. So the church is born in Acts chapter 2. It lasts about 300 years of being attacked by different various heresies and different um, Thoughts that came, uh, things that were divisive, divisive that came. And then about the year 325, there was a group of leaders and pastors that came together. And we call it the Council of Nicaea. At that council, what they decided to do was they decided to not whittle away to cut away any of the good stuff, but to streamline and to get Concise or precise statements of belief that were founded purely in the word of God and the apostles teaching and put it in simple statement form so that the churches could all subscribe to this as their foundation. There are other councils that met but this is the first one that we know of in history and they formulated something called a creed which is this formal statement of belief. And here's what it says in part. It says this, We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, God from God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. That is a as clear as can be statement that they could make and for centuries, the true Christian, authentic Christian church has not really strayed far from that original statement. We understand that it's not divinely inspired because it's a man-made document, but we understand that it's based in truth that is found in the word of God. In fact, I will tell you as your pastor, there is not one single word I disagree with, I don't disagree with a single word that you see on that screen from what we call the Nicene Creed. We believe that God is one, but we believe he's represented himself to us as father, son, and spirit. So I, I want to break this down in a little bit more detail for you before we jump into the fatherhood of God specifically. We'll talk about the Trinity, and I'm going to give you a couple slides that basically say all three persons are, and then fill in the blank. So if you're taking notes today and you want to put a little bulleted point list, you can do so. The first is this. All three persons of the Trinity are distinct. They have individual personalities. They are distinct. Listen to me, it's going to it's it is very simple statement. It's a very simple statement, but it can sound complicated. There is that of the father that is not the son and of the son that is not the father and of the spirit that is not the father or the son, but all three are the same. I know. They're distinct. This is important for us to understand. They're represented in scripture as distinct personalities and that they are active in different modes during different times. The next thing is all three persons of the Trinity are eternal, self-existent outside of the confines of human time or space. I found myself just in light of having studied and prepped this series of messages, I find myself worshiping God a little bit differently. And I, and I say something, you know, under my breath to the Lord in worship, and maybe you think that's weird, and I'm sorry, but, you know, Amy's singing some words, and I'm saying something else different. I'm just kind of making up my own song sometimes. I encourage you to do the same thing. Sometimes the slides aren't what the words she's singing and whatever. I just break out and just, Lord, you're worthy of my praise. You were worthy from the beginning. And then I stopped today and I said, you were worthy before our beginning. Because you've always been. You are now and you will always be. It changes your perspective when you understand that God has always existed and will always exist. It's amazing. All three persons of the Trinity are indivisible, and inseparable. These two words, if you look them up in a a dictionary, you would find them in listings underneath one another as synonyms, but they are different slightly, and I'm going to tell you what the difference is. Indivisible means unable to be divided. There is no way for them to be divided. The father doesn't do something over here without the Holy Spirit or without the son. That's not how this works. And they are inseparable. If you've ever had a friend that you thought you and that person, oh man, every time I see so-and-so, they're always with so-and-so, inseparable. My two daughters, they seem inseparable most of the time until the level gets a little too much, too much love and too much care. And then they just want a little break and then they separate for a time, right? Husbands and wives, we do the same thing. Okay. We love each other, but there's times we're apart. Here's the thing. God is never apart. He's never discombobulated, he's never confused, he never authors chaos, he always authors order. It is amazing when you think about it. They're indivisible and inseparable. All three persons of the Trinity are, listen to me, cooperative. They cooperate with one another. They choose to not work independently of the others. This is mind-numbing to us to think about. They are one in nature as well, being divine. I encourage you, I challenge you. You should go home and read Deuteronomy chapter 32. It's It's a wild, wild passage of scripture. Talking about what God has created that is divine... God himself is divine. All three of them divine in nature. And they are one in will, in mission, in purpose, and in authority. Listen. This means that there is no disagreement inside of them. This is amazing when you think about the God that you serve. Well, why has he represented himself this way? We will get into that. But I need you to understand that in our finite minds, it's hard for us to grasp because every organization you've ever been a part of, every political party, every societal organization, every marriage, there is disagreement in something. We don't know what it's like to have the kind of unity of will, mission, and purpose, and authority that is perfect the way that God represents himself to us. Jesus never sought his own will while on earth as the Son of God and Son of Man. The Holy Spirit, I'm telling you this because I've met some weird people in my life, the Holy Spirit of God Will never say something to Sister So and so that's contrary principally to the Word of God. Listen to me again. The Holy Spirit will speak fresh words and new new life giving things to you, and they are always based out of what can be corroborated in the written Word of God. He's not giving you a new gospel to go and preach. Do you understand? So you need to be firm in your faith enough to be able to weed that out. You need to be like the elders in Ephesus just as a civilian Christian to be able to say, you know what, I'm, thank you for sharing that with me. I do not agree with that. I don't find that in the word of God that God ever, fill in the blank, that, that's not for me. Thank you so much. You don't have to be super rude about it, but I'm telling you, Don't put up with it. You should not put up with false teaching. You should not do it. The God that we serve, the Trinity, has revealed himself as the eternally self-existent I am. It's one of the most puzzling statements in all of the word of God. If you look in Exodus... In Exodus chapter 3, and I won't read the verse, you can reference it later. About verse 14, Moses basically is having a conversation with God. And he asks, what is your name? And God replies and says, I am that I am. He's eternally self-existent. He doesn't need you, but he wants you. He didn't need to build the world, but he wanted to. He didn't need to create the universe, but he chose to. It's amazing. The God that we serve is amazing. So now that we've talked a little bit about the Trinity and I've twisted your brain a little bit and you can, you're like, oh, I got so many other words this morning. Now, let me talk to you about the father specifically that we worship. The question that I have is why do we call him Father. I met a lady in Walmart one time that accosted me while I was shopping for socks, who handed me a tract. And if you're like in the current generation or younger, you don't know what that is. It's like a little booklet that's it got information in it. It's like a pamphlet, okay? She handed me a tract, and she said, Do you have a moment? This is Walmart and Clinton years ago. Do you have a minute? And I said, Um, Sure. Why did I say sure? I don't know. It was so stupid. I was like, no, I just want my socks. Anyway, she began to talk about the divine she, the ruler of the universe, and how God is female. And it was this crazy wild tangent she was going on. She, whatever. But it was all wacky and wonky. I listened to her for just a moment, and I, and I just said, every place in scripture that I've found God is referenced or talked about in a masculine fatherhood role. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason he has determined that. I'm not an anti-feminist and all that stuff. We're not getting into political arguments or debates or equal wages today or a gap. We're not talking about that stuff. I'm just telling you this. God has represented himself first and foremost As a father, and it's important that you understand why. Not to downplay the role of a mother. I just want you to hear me out today. God is our father for a lot of reasons, but I'm going to give you five simple ones. The first is this. Reason number one, God is our father because he is our maker. He's our creator. In general terms or generic terms, your father played a role in making you. God is our Father because He made us. He created humankind. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and here is the plurality of God, three in one. If you read the story in Genesis, the account of creation, then God, hey, look at me. Don't believe false teaching about evolution. I'll stop right there and say, If you believe Jesus is real and can save you, and you believe the prophets were right when they prophesied him, and you believe that Moses actually led people, then you must believe that God actually created the world, or else all the rest of it is garbage. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says this. I'm passionate about this. Then God said, Let us. Who's us? God said, let us make man in our image. Listen to me, do some deeper study and learn all the Greek and Hebrew that you want to and jump in some Aramaic. I'm telling you, God represents himself even in his titles that he gives his people to call him throughout the Old Testament. They're plural nouns. It's amazing. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing, all the creepy crawlies. I got to tell you, I just, uh, the only dominion I exercise over a roach is death. That's what I do. It's either he dies or I die or I'm going to burn the house down. If it's a spider, I'm burning the house down. I saw one of those big ones a couple months ago in the front yard and I texted a picture to my wife and I said, honey, we gotta move. I I gotta either go buy a flamethrower or we gotta move. She screams, I scream, we look at each other like who's gonna kill it? And I mean, she trusts that I'll do it eventually but what am I trying to say? God created male and female and he created them in his likeness And it's important that there are differences in the genders. There's a lot that is being forsaken in the account that's in Genesis by those who still call themselves Christians today. Yet they are churches, there are churches, I put in quotations, that are raising flags that should not be raised. And it's a red flag. It's not a multicolored flag. It's a red flag because or it should be to us because they are not believing the Bible is the true word of God and he is who he says he is. So he's our father because he created us. The second reason is this. He is the father of Israel. This is the nation of his choosing. I love, and I've shared this with you before, and I know that those who are veteran believers here have heard this phrasing before and read this passage before. I did not call you because you were great. I did not call you because you were rich. I didn't call you because you were the greatest or best at whatever. I called you because I wanted to call you my own. Turns out they're a pretty small nation even today. He is the father of Israel. You say, well, Pastor, how do you, what does that, how does that play into this? In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, he says as much. When Moses is to approach Pharaoh, the Bible says in verse 22, he says, You shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, to Pharaoh, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I'll kill your firstborn son. God took this pretty seriously. He was creating a people who were not a people. He was giving them a land that was not previously theirs. He was calling them his own. And aren't you glad it didn't just stay with those people, but that God opened up a way for all of us who want to to come into his family. God's a family man. That's why we know him as a father. Reason number three. He's fatherly in his dealings with his children. In fact, I said this just a second ago, but he's the designer of the family unit. That's why I harp on Genesis chapter one. He created male and female for them to complement one another, for them to be able to create life together, and gave them a purpose and said, Go and multiply and fill the earth. He is the designer of the family. The family is being eroded in the public square. There are snide remarks in all of your children's movies and shows that they watch. I promise you, I've caught them because I'm sensitive to them. It's not just that somebody is coming into a mixed you know, situation where somebody got a divorce and whatnot. It's all this different gender ideology and stuff that's being spouted by the people who are in this world running with the spirit of this world. I'm telling you, church, be careful. If you're a grandparent here today, pray for your grandkids. Lead them. Help your children who are adults to lead them. But more than just fathering offspring, God, as a father, is fatherly in his dealings with his children. It's important, I think, for me to stop here and remind you of something that I remind you of every once in a while. Not everyone is God's child. And that's not just me jumping on a soapbox. But I've heard that moronic statement said by well-meaning people. Well, we're all God's children. No, we're not. In fact, in this room, we may not all be God's children. You are only God's child if you have called him your father and decided to follow his path and his leading and his will. That's what makes you adopted into the family of God and brought into his family to call him father. Not everybody has done that. So it's important for us to understand that it's only those who have chosen him to be their father. Scripture is full of descriptions of God that include him having fatherly actions towards his children. Psalm 103 says this, verse 8 and 13. It says, the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. How many fathers do I have in the room right now? Okay. Okay. Here's a marker for us to attempt to attain, us to try to get to, to say, Lord, let your character be formed in me. Help me be merciful to my children. Help me to be slow to anger. I need this, me, Dexter, I need this. Then in verse 13, it says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He acts like a father. He is a good father, in fact. He is the best father. He's there when you need him. He supports you. He provides for you. He cares for you. He's concerned for you. If you're far away from him, he still loves you. He's always calling you back. The imagery of the prodigal son and the father standing in the driveway or sitting on the porch waiting for that wayward son to return is an image of our heavenly father. He loves us like a father should. That may not be the image of a father that you have here in this earth or the way that you were raised, you may not have had that experience, but God is a better father than your father. No matter how crummy he was, no matter how great he was, God is a better father than him. Reason number four, that the father is the father that we worship is because he is the father of Jesus of Nazareth. You say, well, pastor, this is sounding really simple. I'm trying to help you just frame your theology and understand. He's your father because he created you. He's the father of Israel. He's, the, he's fatherly in how he deals with us. And he's also the father of Jesus, the man who is our savior, the Jewish Messiah. And the Bible says he's the redeemer of all mankind. God the Father sent the Son, the Bible says. It's an incredible mystery. We don't understand the inner workings of it. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being eternal God of one substance, He is equal with the Father. And when the fullness of time was come, then He was sent to the earth to become in human form, With all the essential attributes and properties of us as human. You should not overemphasize, listen to me carefully, because I don't want to get an email about this later. We should be careful to not overemphasize the deity of Jesus Christ to the neglect of his humanity. Because what ends up happening is we divide him and say, we come up with this Dr. Jekyll and Hyde scenario instead of understanding what the word of God says, that he was the son of God, he is the seed of woman, he is the rod of Jesse, but he was born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit, sent by God the Father to this earth. He is at the same time fully God and fully man and never sinned. He died for you. He's the only one. He literally is the only viable option according to covenant who could meet the requirement for your redemption. That's why we say it's not about works. It's about what he's done. It's about God's grace on you and on I. Very God and very man. And he was the only possible plausible mediator The Bible says that's what he's called a mediator between God and man. In fact, it says so in first Timothy chapter two, verse five, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. I don't know if you've ever seen like the hats or the T-shirts, the man, the myth, the legend, you know, that kind of stuff. The man, the Bible calls Jesus the man. This is the man, Christ Jesus. There's one God, one mediator And it is he. And number five is we call him father because he is. And because Jesus taught us to. Think about it. Does anybody here remember the phrase born again? Do you remember hearing that? Anybody ever said that? I was born again on January 11th, 1963. Born again. It's an older term. We still should be using that term. That'll be a soapbox if I get on it. I'm just saying, it's okay to say you're saved. It's okay, I've been redeemed. But I'm telling you, there's something significant about John the Baptist and then Jesus saying, you must be Born again. When he's having the conversation with Nicodemus, Nicodemus, in his humanness, in his finite mind, as a grown man, has a very quizzical look on his face, I'm sure, and says, Jesus, what am I supposed to do? Like, go like Benjamin Button? And I'm supposed to like, decrease in size and stature? I'm supposed to re-enter my mother and come out again? How am I supposed to be born again? And Jesus is saying something that's amazing here when he says that you must be born again that which is born of the Spirit. You've got to be born again. We call Him Father because Jesus taught us to call Him Father. The Bible teaches us that every human is spiritually dead and must be born again. That's why the gospel is good news. Because there's hope. Because to the one who does not believe, who is then confronted with the truth and the authority of scripture, and they come to the knowledge of that truth, in that moment, they come to faith in Christ. They can be born again, born again, and God can become their father. They were once spiritually dead, and now they're alive. And the only way to do this is to pledge your allegiance to your new father, who is God himself. In what's commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to call God the Father, Father. Five times the instance of your Father shows up, and one instance of our Father. So go with me to Matthew chapter 6, and let's read this passage together. If you were raised Catholic, you should know this really well. Um, Many of us would know it. I learned it in a Christian school. We said it all the time. I love to hear it prayed frequently. I think it should be something that we continue to do. I think sometimes we reject it just because it kind of feels like a formula, but it is a formula. Jesus gave us this formula, and he says this in verse six. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door. Pray to your father, your father, who is in secret, and it says, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Stop there and listen to me. Jesus was not saying we couldn't pray in public, join together in prayer. Jesus is actually criticizing the Pharisees who are going, Oh God, my father! In front of all these people trying to make a big show. So Jesus is correcting that. Verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. I don't know if you've ever been in a prayer meeting or a prayer circle with somebody who didn't know very many other words besides Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus. And that you know, they just keep repeating and you're like, okay, bless their heart. Please let them get all the words of their prayer out. Jesus, please. Sorry, that's just my humanness coming through. But listen, Jesus is actually saying the same thing. Don't just throw in empty phrases. Think about it before you say it. Come to your father. With your request. It says verse 8. Don't be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Verse 9 says. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Listen to me. This is funny. I hope you'll appreciate this. I was praying this prayer yesterday afternoon. And I thought, Lord, I've forgiven all my debtors, but they sure haven't forgiven me. (laughs) Wouldn't it be nice if all your debtors forgave you? Come on now, somebody. All right. It's okay to have fun in church. Verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. In verse 15, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I don't have time to get into that today. You've heard me preach it before, but if you haven't, I will preach it again. There is a reciprocal relationship with many things in God's word. One of them, the primary one, is forgiveness. God himself says he will not forgive you if you are holding bitterness, anger, resentment towards others. You've got to forgive others before God will forgive. It's in his word through and through. So Jesus taught us to address God as our heavenly father. That was the five simple reasons why we call God father. Here's the final question of the day. Why do we worship him, our heavenly father? This is going to sound simple, but it's because we're commanded to. It's a two-part answer. It's because we're commanded to and because he's the only one that's worthy of your worship. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, you might be familiar. There's a time for this, a time for that, a time for this, a time for that. It's a huge list. It says in Ecclesiastes that God has set eternity in the heart of humans. That there's something in our knower that knows that there's something larger, greater, bigger than us. And that is what we must worship. God himself. In fact, Paul the Apostle, when preaching in a, in a very large gathering... In Athens, he's preaching and he says, you've got a temple here and an altar to an unknown God. I'm here to tell you today, he can be known. He is the God of heaven and earth. That is our God. Amen. So he's worthy of our worship. Simply stated, worship is ascribing worth. It literally means to declare value. So it requires your, your mouth it requires your mouth. There are some supplements you can add to it. So like if you're starting a diet and you're going low carb, there are some things you can have and some things you can't, and there's some snacks that are on this list, whatever. Listen to me. Worship requires your heart, your spirit, your spirit man, and your mouth. And then the supplements that you can add to it are hand raising, dancing. (laughs) Okay. That wasn't really a dance, but moving your body, kneeling. The Bible says laying prostrate in the most humble position you can, in the most vulnerable position you can. There are all sorts of different modes of how we can get our worship out, but it starts in our spirit and comes through your mouth. Amen? And to worship God is to recognize, honor, and express His worthiness. That's what worship is all about. It's, listen to me, it's making a declaration that the creator of the universe has captured your attention and has earned your allegiance. That's what worship is. It's saying, God, you've got me and you're worthy of my worship. There's a throne on everyone's heart. Some people put money there. Some people put substance there. Some people put relationships there. Some people, they, there's a lot of things you can sit or have seated on the throne of your heart. But God is the only one who deserves that spot because he's your maker and your redeemer. Amen. We worship him because we recognize that there's no other thing. There's no other being. Listen to me. There's no other God. There's no other substance or possession that's worthy to be the king of me. And here is the hard, harsh truth. Not even you are worthy of being the king or queen of your life. Not even you, how great you are, how sweet you are and how wonderful and all the good things. Not even you deserve that throne. God does. So he's worthy of our worship. Worship team, would you come? The Apostle John describes what he sees in the throne room of heaven. It's amazing in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Side note, just because it's a pet peeve, stop calling it Kroger's and Walmart's. It's not, okay? And you say, Pastor, you're crazy. Like, are you, what, what, what do you have in your system this morning? It's a pet peeve because people call it revelations. It's not revelations. It's not Kroger's. It's not Walmart's. It's revelation. The Bible in the old King James, at least, has a paragraph worth of statement in there. And hopefully my dramatic encouragement there will help you correct yourself when you go to say it again. But it says the revelation of Jesus Christ to the Apostle John. John the apostle is seeing something and he's captured by this vision in the throne room of heaven in chapter four, verse 11. There are 24 elders and they've been given crowns and the Bible says that in this moment that he witnesses, they rip off their crowns. They take them off exuberantly and they throw them, cast them at the feet of the one who is worthy to sit on the throne they say with the host of heaven, worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you have created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. The Bible says that this, this moment is repetitive and that they continue to throw their crowns down and then they're picked back up and they're worshiping and they continue This is something we'll do for eternity. Heaven's not gonna be lame or boring. I don't think you're gonna be floating on a cloud with a bow and arrow like Cupid. The imagery that we have is weird that we come up with. I think there's gonna be amazing things for us to do. The Bible says we're gonna judge the angels. It says that we are going to be rulers in the new heaven and new earth with Jesus Christ himself. He is going to give his brothers and sisters rightful possession and ownership and authority in his kingdom. God's got some amazing plans for us. And the two things you'll be doing for eternity are giving and worshiping. You think you're gonna need me to read the Bible to you up there? No, you're not gonna need this. We'll be singing and worshiping the hope the host of heaven God almighty he and he alone is the one who deserves your worship I'm excited that we've got a few minutes to worship him today would you stand with me today I want to encourage you to personalize this message if you've been here at our church for any period of time you know that this is a prayer we often pray I encourage you just like I just did a moment ago about the Lord's Prayer. Don't let it become a routine thing that loses any significance. Let it bring life to you. It's a simple prayer. Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me today? The Holy Spirit could say something completely off of this message, not even having to deal with this message to your heart about a situation that you're dealing with at work. God has answers that He wants to give His people. It could be something that He wants you to apply from this message, but pray that prayer in your heart today as we worship. And I want to encourage you to worship Him for who He truly is. Close your eyes right now with me, all across this room. Just declare that statement out loud. Whisper it if you need to, if you're super introverted and, and you don't want to speak very loudly. Lord, you are worthy. God, you're worthy. Just begin to praise him today. Tell him why he's worthy. Thank him for being a good father to you. Thank him for all that he's done and for who he is. Lord, I'm so thankful that you're our father. And today we want to worship you for these last few moments in spirit and in truth. So help us do it with all of our being, with all of our heart with all of our spirit in Jesus' name.